What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 73 of the 2QB Experience. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host. You can find all my work over at 2QBs.com. You can find me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. And on the show with me today, a uh, new special guest, uh, first time on the show, Anthony Staggs at Pyrostag uh, on Twitter of Pyromaniac.com and the Pyro Podcast, Fantasy Football Fire. Anthony, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Things are good. Football's getting right into full swing. We're getting real close to the draft here. And all the talk is about QBs at the top. So that's always exciting for a guy like you. Oh, it's a perfect place to be for a two-quarterback-centric podcast, man. Superflex, two QB leagues, all that stuff. This is what we love, especially because unlike a lot of one-quarterback leagues, the two-quarterback format actually makes these guys relevant in year one a lot more than they would be you know, in, in non or in traditional one quarterback leagues. Um, I wanted to ask you another thing about your, uh, your Twitter bio though. I was looking this up to, you know, kind of figure out who, who I needed to plug, you know, pyromaniac.com of course, but, um, your bio also notes that you were once the director of football operations with the Chicago slaughter, which was an indoor football team. And I'm curious, yep. what was that like and how, what have you brought from that experience into your current work as a fantasy analyst? Yeah, that, it definitely has a big role, uh, I started, you know, as an intern, worked all my way up, uh, you know, while getting my master's degree, worked there. But basically, it's an indoor football team. They play very similar styles to, you know, Arena League. And then the Arena League is becoming a lot more prevalent. A lot of these coaches, you know, have a little bit of experience there rather than straight NFL playing experience. So there's a lot of parallels. Uh, I worked with a lot of players. Uh, some of the guys are, are now, you know, up playing in the CFL, and some got NFL shots. Uh, so th- there's a lot of good guys out there beyond the NFL that are good football players. And, and now you start to see all these little, uh, you know, spring leagues popping up with getting all the Manziel hype and about to see the XFL again. So a, you know, minor league to the NFL is closer than it's ever been. And that's something that's exciting because player development at the NFL level, you know, is, is lacking right now with the new CBA and the number of, you know, work hours and practice hours you could put in with these guys. Uh, you know, especially when it comes to the developing young quarterbacks, you know, guys like Aaron Rodgers sat for three years, had tons of practice time. But now these other guys, you want them to sit. But when when do they get reps? When do they get live live football action? And you see it, you know, take take its toll on guys like you know Christian Hackenberg, who hasn't even seen a snap at the NFL level yet in a regular season game. Yeah, so I, that's something that I'm really curious about because we just finished up a, a sponsorship with the FCFL, the Fan Controlled Football League, and yep. they're implementing these new ideas where, you know, fans are going to, you know, vote or, or submit, you know, their play calls or their, uh, you know, GM decisions, things like that. And that's cool. And that's, that's got its own place. But in terms of, you know, evaluating players, like you were talking about and uh, developing players, what sort of like rules or practices from, you know, non-conventional football leagues like this, do you think the NFL could most benefit from? Like, what are these smaller leagues doing that the NFL should be noticing and trying to implement or, or you know, put into their own game? You know, from an offensive standpoint, there's a lot of different factors. Uh, you know, there's very unique motions in arena and indoor football where you can have two guys run up from 10 yards behind the line of scrimmage, get full running starts. Uh, but with the condensed playing field of 50 yards and, you know, smaller, tighter end zones, guys having to make these quick passing game decisions, 
Uh, you know, the shotgun and the spread quick passing game is very prevalent. And, and you can see that with guys like uh, Nagy and Jay Gruden, who are both former Arena League quarterbacks who want to get the ball out of, you know, their quarterback's hands quick and let their playmaker make plays. You know, when you have these guys with such immense talent with the ball in their hands, you got to get it to them as quick as possible, as many ways as possible. So using things like motion uh, and jet sweeps, you know, that's a very common thing uh, in arena leagues. And you can even look to, you know, the RPO type reads along with, you know, uh, read option type plays. Those are all things that are successful because when you have, you know, three linemen and a linebacker, uh, you know, the run game is a little bit different, harder. You got man on man. So the, the read aspect is giant and you can see how that that's really taking its toll on the NFL as of late. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it seems like the, the play calling gets more creative every year, at least with some coaches, you know, others, maybe not so much. And we're going to spend the bulk of this episode talking about play calling tendencies and uh, all, all sorts of different splits in that regard. But before we get there, I want to do a quick little warm up, just kind of a thought exercise. And, and one thing I've been thinking a lot about this offseason is or are the quarterbacks who may be in jeopardy of losing their jobs when we don't necessarily forecast or know that yet. And I, I like that you brought up, you know, the Bears and Matt Nagy. Last year when they brought in Trubisky and, and Glennon at the same time, like there were there was some thought that, you know, Glennon was going to keep that starting job as long as he was able. I mean, it turns out that wasn't very long. And he was one of the more easy quarterbacks to maybe forecast losing his job but who do you think in this upcoming 2018 season could surprise us you know which, which team might give us a quarterback shakeup that wouldn't necessarily be expected at, at this point of the year yeah right now you know before the draft there, there's still a lot of these teams with question marks that need to be filled you know guys like buffalo uh new york you know, the Browns, of course, even though they have uh, Tyrod Taylor in, in town now. Uh, you know, Arizona's got a big question mark with, you know, Sam Bradford, who's a frail guy. And the Giants, who, you know, have Eli Manning, but he, his play has been subpar over the last few years and, you know, declining. And you could tell at his age that this is sooner going to become a problem than later. But, you know, there's also a couple roles where guys just haven't played up to snuff and are, get, you know, got big deals. They need to start playing better. And it's definitely a case in Baltimore. I mean, Joe Flacco yep. became a $100 million man. Uh, he's got a big contract that takes him through 2022 uh, when he'd be an uh, uh, unrestricted free agent. Uh, he, there is an out in 2019 for them that, that would only leave, you know, about $8 million in dead cap. Uh, but eventually, he's just got to play better on the field. This guy posted one of the low, lowest yards per attempt numbers you've ever seen in the National Football League. And, and that just can't continue, especially, you know, when you're bringing in options with starting experience and a guy like uh, Robert Griffin III. You know, you've got Mallet, uh, you know, on the ethos there. So you've got players who have played. When does a big decision come on this guy? It might not be 2018, but the fact is he still has to play better on the football field because those defenses aren't the same strength that they were when he came out and he could ride them to 12 and 4, 11 and 5 records every year. And and for the QB wins crowd, you look up Joe Flacco's career record, and the guy's 92 and 62. 
But but the play on the field, especially for fantasy purposes, just hasn't been there, especially now that the attempts have plummeted uh, last season. Yeah, and I mean, they were throwing a lot more passes the two years before that, and that was kind of, I think that was propping him up to some extent, because he wasn't a whole lot more efficient in those seasons either, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a great call. He, he'd be one of my choices as well. I think the other is Andy Dalton, just kind of looking at what's gone on with the Bengals in recent years. Now, I... I think we can blame a lot of his failures last season on that offensive line uh, but you know at some point he's got to get back to that form he showed us in that one you know shortened season where he was really really good and uh, aside from that he hasn't fully captured it since um, and I, I think that you know he's got some proving it to do now in both cases you know Dalton and Flacco those quarterbacks don't necessarily have anybody behind them breathing down their necks and so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the draft with either of them um in anything yeah. else on, on these, these quarterbacks before we dive into play-calling stuff? Yeah, I really agree with you on Dalton. Like right now you just look at the depth chart and it features guys like Matt Bark- Matt Barkley and Jeff Driscoll, and there's no one you're really excited about uh, from a development standpoint. And, you know, if they spend a late-round pick at the position, uh, you know, I'm really not worried about it. You know, the number of fourth through seventh-round draft picks that hit are few and far between. So if they're going up there and they're spending a more premium pick in the first two rounds, we know that a shakeup is likely to happen with one of these highly paid guys. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's only a matter of time. Like everything has to end at some point, right? And we talk about that stuff with, you know, the elite guys like Tom Brady and Drew Brees all the time. You know, these guys who keep getting older and and seem to, you know, stave off father time every season. But, you know, Everything has to end for those guys, for the Daltons and Flacco's of the world. Um, it, it's just it, it's interesting to try to forecast when that stuff's going to happen. And if you can be right on that stuff in fantasy, you can reap a lot of reward from that, especially in a two quarterback league where if you really believe that, you know, Joe Flacco is going to get benched at some point this season, you might invest a little bit in his backup, whoever that ends up being. But uh, let's dive into the play calling stuff. And you were kind enough to share a, a lot of data with me, and, and we'll get more into that later. But off the top here, what do you care about most with respect to play calling? Like, if you were a GM, what key traits would factor into your play caller evaluations? Yeah, so, so there's a lot of different things. I've shared these multiple times, and they're sort of my key tenets or things I look for and sort of want uh, from an offensive coordinator. I want them to play with pace. And not just always go fast like we've seen from Chip Kelly. Right. There is a time and a place to go fast knowing those times is when you can get your team a big edge you know the patriots are one of the best at this uh we saw the eagles employ this from time to time last year you get the defense in a spot where they can't sub out and you have you know more optimal offensive players on the field that's excellent you ride it you put the pedal to the metal uh and you do that but then you know later maybe you know, the five-minute drill, that's important. Killing the clock late in games and knowing how to do that while using the pass game and the run game and not just trying to, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust football uh, to get a first down, but being able to take a deep shot and push the ball down the field a little bit and and step on a throat, frankly. Like, I, I like an offensive coordinator who's going to be out there being aggressive uh, and playing with pace, but being smart with it. Yeah, and I love that you brought up Belichick in, in the Patriots because that is one of the, the best examples, uh, of course. And 
One of the things I, I like that they also do, which isn't necessarily related to the pace of how they play, is they tend to use a lot of similar you know, skill types of players. They have a lot of redundancy in the types of players they use on offense. Like, they have Julian Edelman and Danny Amendola and James White and Deion Lewis and all these guys who can kind of be used interchangeably so that when you... When you go to use the, those motions that you were talking about earlier with respect to, you know, indoor football and, and try to disrupt, you know, a defense's plan, they have guys that can work at different spots in the field, despite the fact that they might all line up in, you know, the same spot every time, you know, initially before motion. Um, do, can you speak at all to that sort of redundancy of offensive weapon? Yeah, uh, redundancy, and there's also adaptability. Sure. Uh, so it's sort of another tenet where I, I want, you know, to tailor the offense around the players on, on my team. So if I have Jeremy Hill at the time, I'm going to want to play a little bit more downhill football run game. I'm not going to want to call as many, you know, draw screen type passes, you know, outside zones. Uh, knowing your player's strengths is a big thing. Like we see with Jarek McKinnon all the time, you know, a couple of years ago, the offensive coordinator would just call, you know, slam up the middle. And then, you know, it's just not what this guy does well, but if you can get him, you know, off tackle and around the edges, it's where he really excels. So, you know, tailor your play calling to those guys you have on the field at the time and the guys on your roster, because, you know, it's very important um, and, and with those redundant assets, you can be diverse. You can run different formations and personnel groupings. Uh, you can go with two running backs on the field, and sometimes maybe they're split uh, to each side of the quarterback in a shotgun set. Then you motion one out. Uh, then you run your quick jet to him, and you jet him back in the backfield. And there's just so many different variations that you could run when you have sort of diverse skill players. And it just gives your offense an edge to sort of make these uh, diverse and, uh, you know, enigmas that are hard to guard defensively. Yeah, can you think of uh, like a good example of that not on a team like the Patriots? Because I feel like we're going to be you know pumping them up for for a lot of this stuff because they're so well coached and so well schemed. But um, what what other teams do you see doing that well? Yeah, uh, the Eagles did it well last year. They used Trey Burton as a chess piece. Um, then you know there's other teams like the Rams. We talk about how they sort of use Gerald Everett as a H back from times. Then they move him to you know tight end then they move them out to the slot and they put them on the split end and just the uh, adaptability of a guy like that brings big things to an offense especially when that that's a guy who can make people miss from the tight end position so there are so many different examples and it, it's not just with the running back position like we need to have diverse wide receivers we need to have diverse tight ends we need to have diverse running backs and it even helps when your quarterback's diverse and, you know, he can get out and scramble a little bit, make things happen with his legs, you know, read defensive ends and take advantage of that uh, when it's open because that just adds another layer to the game. And, you know, when you get these reads involved, there's not enough players on defense to stop them. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I like that you brought up that idea of having diverse assets at wide receiver too because we, we don't – I don't think we give enough – 
credence to that most seasons where like you see Deshaun Jackson depart Washington for the Buccaneers and what that does to Washington's offense may not seem like that big of a deal because I hate to say it like when you think of a guy like Djax a lot of times what you hear people say is oh he's just a speed guy well offenses need a speed guy you know what I mean like that that's part of the equation right yeah, we're definitely always, as offensive coordinators, we are trying to stretch the field horizontally, horizontally as well as vertically. Vertically is sort of much harder unless you have these guys with elite speed or, you know, guys that can go up and get it, uh, guys that can reach over guys. And it helps when those guys also have a little bit of speed, adequate speed. When You don't need Mike Evans for every single one of them. But you also don't want all your players to be Kelvin Benjamin because we saw how that worked out, you know, for Carolina. We right. need, you know, these diverse sort of pieces to fit together. So, you know, when I design an offense, I'm always looking for a vertical threat. Then I'm looking for sort of what they call a, a possession receiver. And, and then my slot guy who's quick in and out of breaks and who can get me first downs on third down when I need them the most, when they're important. Which of those three roles do you think is the least important for an offense? I don't know if there is one that's least (laughs) important for an offense in today's day and age. I mean, cornerbacks are so fast. Um, You know, the defense can stretch out uh, with their linebackers who now have more and more speed. It's important to have one of each. So, you know, some teams just stick to their archetype at wide receiver, and it just doesn't work out for them. I, mean, I think you need that, you know, multiple dimensions of players at wide receivers to have sort of a complete offense. And, you know, the the Buccaneers, like we mentioned, they should have that now. They they have a vertical uh, stretch threat in both Mike Evans and Djax. I think Godwin could be a possession type receiver for them. You know, um, you know, Evans can do things on in routes and uh, posts that nobody else in the league can do. And then you have these diverse tight ends who are, you know, very solid uh, run blockers as well as short receivers over the middle. And that just gives you, uh, you know, the dimensions. And then now I've got to mention Adam Humphreys just for the slot guy reference. <laughs> Got to do it, man. I mean, it, it, and they have the tight ends there, too. I mean, O.J. Howard's going to come into his own. Like, Jameis Winston is going to start running out of excuses pretty quick here. And and I do think that this is probably the season where he's sort of, you know, blows up or, or comes into his own, at least from a fantasy perspective. Yeah. It seems like everything's lining up for that. Um, are there any other, you know, key tenets you're looking at in terms of uh, offensive strategy and play calling strategy? I mean, there's about a billion. We'll stick to maybe one more. I want him to be analytical. I want him to know what he does well. I want him to know know what the defense doesn't do well, and I want him to mesh those ideas together or, you know, tailor a game plan to attack those needs uh, and attack those weaknesses and do the things they do well over and over. So if you're a great run offense from the shotgun, let's see that. And, the coaches are sort of, you know, fickle beasts to where they don't want to uh, stray too far from the norm. But 
these guys that are doing it now are so, so good at what they do. And they can show new wrinkles. And these younger guys don't seem to be scared of showing things that they stole from high school and college offenses. It gives a lot of different diversity. And then they can see these things and then find ways to attack it. We, you know, once you find a way to attack, you know, Cleveland's linebackers and coverage with the tight end, you got to do it. You got to keep doing it. And then you got to design things around that that make it look like you're going to do it, and then you do something completely else. Yeah, that's a big one for me is unpredictability in play calling. And some some play callers take that way too far, of course, but it, it's kind of a game of cat and mouse, right? It's like, here's your weakness. And, I mean, if I know your weakness as the opposing you know offensive coordinator, then you as the defensive coordinator are surely going to know that weakness as well, right? Like, if, if, you're, if you're the Cleveland defensive play caller, you know your linebackers are a liability. And so... One, you have to worry about, like you say, scheming against that, like knowing that they're going to come at you with their tight ends and, and their other guys over the middle. But you also have to be, you know, ready for those, those, yeah, what's the right word here? Those counter punches, right? Where okay. it looks like they're trying to do one thing, but they're actually going to try to do another to really, you know, break you down. Yeah, do you have any sort of key tenets of your offense that we haven't discussed? What do you think? Yeah, I, unpredictability is is one for me, but I guess that kind of meshes with what you were talking about with diversity, where where you have a lot of different options, and basically you want to keep the, the opposing defense on its toes. Um, I, I think this is something that's a little bit more, you know, narrative heavy, but confidence in your players, you know, being able to say, like, I know that my players are good, or I know what my players are capable of, and... I want to be able to, you know, trust in them to do that and ask them to do things that, you know, other people may not be able to do. And that really comes down to knowing your personnel and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, knowing your personnel is one of these, you know, big things to where if I know that, you know, Julio could beat anybody on a slant route at any time, I know I've got that in my back pocket. But now what can I do off of that? What can I do to add to his repertoire? Uh, you know, can we run the pivot route? Uh, can we you know, get him on the slant and go? What are the things that we do well and we do it so well that I can now scheme things off of that? So now you know, we've run this power to the right side five times this game. It's gained eight yards every time. Now can I run play action power and hit a post route uh, you know, over the middle? And all these things are important during the course of the game, and you're going to try so many different variations that you know, knowing what your players do well, you can always come back to as the centerpiece of what you want to do any given week. Yeah, definitely. Now, now, we talked about some of the play calling data that you shared with me, and you have all sorts of different splits that you keep track of, like, Plays out of shotgun, plays under center, you know, third down versus third and short, inside the 20, inside the 10, a bunch of other stuff. How do these variables and the, this data, how does it figure into your fantasy analysis? Yeah, I, th I think it's a major tenant because splits are apparent everywhere in football. You know, we can have great on-off splits when guys aren't off the field. And there's great tools that will do that for you. But also, when it comes down to, you know, the off-season, right now is when play calling and things like this matter the most because it should be the center of any projection model. Um, if you're projecting players in a vacuum for just their own stats, not in the context of a team level, I think you're doing it all wrong. I mean, you've got to – you can't project – 
you know, five players for a hundred targets on one offense. It just doesn't work like that. Uh, and there's so many different little variations that can go into that. Uh, you know, you could, you know, first start with pace. So how many plays is a team likely to run in a season? Because that's something that varies. Uh, you look at a team like Detroit, who ran, you know, the most no huddle plays in a game last season, but also had one of the slower paces. And that's one of the things we talked about with Jim, Jim Bob Cooter is he plays with pace, but he also knows when to rein it back in and play a little bit slower. Uh, and then that's one of the interesting things. But once you know the pace, then you can sort of set up, you know, the play calling splits or estimated play calling splits, projected play calling splits based off, you know, three years of coordinator data, three years of team data, and sort of meld those together for guys that are changing. Because this is one of the craziest off seasons I, I can remember ever in, in terms of coaching changes at the offensive coordinator level. There's going to be, what, 17 or 18 different offensive coordinators this year. Um, and, and you look at it, they might not all be play callers, but a vast majority of these guys are, you know, 15 or 16 are going to be play callers on their new teams. So how do those guys mesh uh, with sort of the old guard that might have been a previous head coach? Or, you know, how do they bring this offense that they worked in before over to this new team and, you know, hopefully make them better and more fantasy viable? Yeah, so so one of the things I want to try to apply this to with regard to quarterbacks are a couple of the guys who traditionally have been high draft picks in fantasy. And we talked about projecting a total number of plays. And you were, again, kind enough to share your, your projections for 2018. And w one thing that jumped out to me was you have the Saints projected to run a lot more plays this year, while you have the Seahawks projected to run a lot fewer plays. And I'm wondering, does that in your mind, make Russell Wilson maybe overvalued as the second or third quarterback off the board in most ADPs right now? And contrary to that, you know, Drew Brees is a guy who seems to be slipping based upon concerns with his age and concerns with the volume that he saw last season, especially around the goal line. Are, are we misvaluing these guys based upon, you know, one season's worth of data? Is this all recency bias? Do you think that like, would you draft Russell Wilson ahead of Drew Brees? And, and I mean, what other sorts of applications do you see between these two guys? So th that's a great question. Uh, with Seattle, you know, they're coming into a new offensive coordinator, Brian Schottenheimer, who's a guy who likes to play it a little bit close to the best. Uh, they run a sort of run-heavy scheme. So this is a team I definitely see out on draft day grabbing one of these earlier running backs to sort of solidify that and get back to that power run game that sort of made them, you know, so special with with Wilson on rollouts and play action and, and getting the ball vertically down the field, uh, especially when you lose red zone weapons like a guy like Jimmy Graham and, you know, Paul Richardson, you know, those number of touchdowns are, are now gone from Seattle. How does this offense change, especially when we think there's no, you know, locked in dynamic number one wide receivers ready from day one to step into a role? You know, we've got to knock Russell Wilson down a little bit. But Russell's also played with less than stellar talent for much of his career in mm -hmm. terms of skill positions. So, He's had, you know, over six uh, touchdown rates with, 
you know, Doug Baldwin is his lead wide receiver and no Jimmy Graham. And so he's sustained that without them. So it's something that's definitely there. So I think right about quarterback five is going to be, uh, you know, Russell Wilson's value. People are going to draft him higher because, you know, he's got that rushing mix to mix with touchdown upside. The yardage is starting to come along and, People are probably going to expect an increased uh, completion percentage based off what he had done previously in his career. So there's a lot of different things in play for Russell Wilson. And it's almost like, you know, when you get too many variables, that's when it's going to be hard to project him as the number one uh, overall quarterback again, especially if they don't do anything for that offensive line or skill position group. And, and if they lay a lot of picks into defense, they're asking Russ to do a lot here. Yep, and I mean, he's been up to the challenge uh, in a lot of his career, so I don't necessarily know if that's a bad thing. Um, what about Breeze? What, what do you see going on with him in the Saints uh, after, you know, last year he saw his volume dip a lot, but his efficiency was, you know, pretty off the charts. It was one of his most efficient seasons ever. I think he's being undervalued in drafts. What about you? Yes, yeah, so New Orleans was a crazy sort of – how the hell did this suddenly happen at this time? They ran a thousand plays last season. In 2016, they were at 1105. In 2015, they were at 1096. This is one of the fastest paces, paced offenses of our modern football generation. And they decided, hey, we're going to play slower than league average this year. So that's something I think is going to rebound back a little bit, especially when pace overall in the NFL went down last year. But I think you could blame that on a lot of inexperienced signal callers, you know, getting time under center in game situations. So I think that's going to rebound a bit for them, especially I, I don't think their defense is going to be as dominant and the ability for those guys to take the ball away. I see that something is going to regress. So they're going to need to run more offensive plays. I don't see how they could possibly sustain that much rushing success again. So Drew Brees looks like a rebound candidate based off of attempts alone because he has weapons you know, on each level of the field, we talk about Michael Thomas and, and Ted Ginn's that vertical stretch player. Uh, I, I think they're going to add more pieces like they're looking to do with this Cam Meredith, uh, you know, offer sheet. So that's a guy, if healthy, you know, had showed some burst uh, for the Chicago Bears previously. But, you know, the weapon everybody wants to know about is Alvin Kamara because he is, you know, he was one of the most electric pass catching backs we've ever seen. Now, we could have a, our own debate about him in terms of efficiency, but Drew Brees, I think his efficiency is just so good at this point in his career that it's what it's going to be until it isn't. And unfortunately, there is no real signs of decline for him right now to know if it's just going to fall off a cliff because that's definitely something that could happen. Yeah, I mean, I've, I think there are some signs of very gradual decline, but based upon how smart he is and how well entrenched he is in that offensive system with Sean Payton, I, I don't think you can forecast a really steep drop-off unless you just absolutely think he's going to get hurt or something. And their offensive line is pretty good, so I, I don't necessarily forecast him to get sacked a ton or anything like that. I want to drill down a little bit deeper on some of these other splits you have and, and why they might matter for fantasy and for you know, evaluating these play calling tendencies. Like, for example, 
if a team tends to run fewer plays out of shotgun, a team like the Atlanta Falcons does this, what does that tell us about how they scheme and how they use their players and, and how can that knowledge of their shotgun usage help us in fantasy? So if you look at shotgun rushing as a whole, it's just better right now. So the average yards per play from shotgun last year uh, was 4.86 yards per carry. Uh, that is a great number. Now you look over at you know under center yards per rush from under center. The number is down to 3.64. So we're talking about 1.2 yards difference. So I want guys that are going to be able to carry it out of the shotgun. Uh, I think it's something that's important. It, it provides a diverse skill set. It allows coordinators to be more diverse because we look at overall play calling when in shotgun, and, and it's a much different story. Uh, you know, teams are only running the ball you know, like 30% of the time when in shotgun. The other, you know, nearly 67%, they are passing it. So if I know splits like that, if I can get one-third versus two-thirds, I'm going to play to those all the time as a defense. Whenever I see a team come out in a shotgun formation, uh, I'm lining up with five defensive backs. I'm playing pass defense first and, and making them beat me with the run, and that is why it has a you know higher yards per carry. But it's it just one of those bigger splits that we could see it, that teams are going to do it. And then when they go under center, you know, teams are very, very heavy when under center. Like, they go to the run game when under center, and it's just a a big split. But with that, I now know that play-action passes out of under center formations are huge. Uh, shotgun percentage did overall go down last year to 58% down from uh, 61% in 2016. So it is something that's been fluctuating. Um, and one of the main reasons for the fluctuation has been, you know, Chip Kelly's uh, leaving the NFL because, you know, two years ago they ran like 99% of their plays from shotgun. They were the shotgun heaviest team ever. And, you know, it had success despite a lack of real talent, uh, you know, at the skill positions. So using those tendency breakers can be good for an offensive coordinator. And, and the big plays can – like we talk about New Orleans and Drew Brees. They attack the field vertically when they go play action out of under center plays. And it works well. Because linebackers are moving up to get Mark Ingram. They're moving up to get Alvin Kamara. And and it just works. They're able to strike right over the linebackers. Or they're able to throw those shot plays to guys like Ted Ginn. That was actually one of the things that really jumped out to me in the data that you sent. Was how how there are only a handful of teams that are actually better running from under center than they are out of shotgun. And... There seems to be some correlation there. It's the Saints, it's the Patriots, it's the Rams, and the Lions. I think those are the four teams, and all four of those teams have pretty good offenses. Do you think there's, I mean, there's got to be some correlation there, right? Yeah, I I think using the shotgun heavy, but then also knowing when to mix off of it is great. A, A team like, you know, New England, they won't run a ton of shotgun plays when you look at them on aggregate, 
they'll be more split uh, in terms of 50-50 shotgun and under center use. And then when you get to the number of play calls uh, from that, they're a little bit more diverse. But they also are a team, when they go heavy, they go full-on heavy. You know, there you see their fullback. But then suddenly the next play, their fullback split out, you know, playing wide receiver like he was in the Super Bowl. And you're like, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) And they did it five plays in a row. Like, you know, that diversity in keeping guys in their personnel groupings is something offensive coordinators are playing with, and they're going to keep playing with it. So it seems like when, when you're looking at these splits and you're evaluating how these teams you know scheme based upon them, you're really looking for the overall quality of the offense more than anything else, right? I mean, am I, am I misinterpreting that? I, I mean, it seems like if you can identify which offenses are good, that's probably the most helpful part of fantasy analysis with regards to this stuff, is figuring out which teams are going to generally move the ball the best and score the most points, right? Yeah, but I'm also trying to find out scheme fits when it comes to players, because we talk about how is Jordan Howard going to fit in Matt Nagy's shotgun-heavy system when he went from a heavy under-center system to a shotgun-heavy system. Is he going to be a fit? And, you know, Jordan Howard's a specific player who, you know, sort of came from a power shotgun run system of Indiana. So he's had extensive experience with that. He's averaged 6.5 yards per carry uh, from shotgun. So I have no concerns with his rushing ability, and it's just going to come down to if he can do anything in the pass game of note. But so I'm going to look for a fit there, uh, you know, in this free agency time and see how guys fit and if they fit the system. Um, You know, a guy like Kareem Hunt was super effective out of the shotgun, are they going to look for more diverse assets? Uh, and some guys, it, it just sort of takes a very different skill set to be an effective shotgun runner than it does, you know, an under center runner where you want to get downhill. That Le'Veon Bell style patience is more important out of the shotgun than it is, you know, out of under center. Yeah, and I mean, Howard's a very interesting case because of how limited he has been in the passing game. Because if, if you see that he is a good runner out of shotgun generally, but you know he's not going to catch the ball really, then that makes you more predictable as an offense to some extent, and that limits his value when he's on the field. So yep. if you if the defense sees Jordan Howard in the backfield, they can, even if they're in shotgun, where normally you would have an advantage running the ball, they might say, oh, well, Jordan Howard's in the game. We can expect run more often than not. And yep. that that's not good necessarily for your play calling. And if, you know, Matt Nagy and, and the Bears decide that that's a liability, then maybe that cuts into his playing time, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's something you got to look forward. I mean, besides this whole Instagram deleting of pictures <laughs> thing, I won't even get into because it's craziness. You know, that could be something that come next contract or come next year that they look to potentially move on from Jordan Howard and go with a more diverse player. Uh, because they want to be able to do multiple things at multiple times. Um, and the more the NFL gets to this, you know, the more specialized some roles will be. But then this idea of a workhorse running back, that's going to be, you know, slightly even more important. Because you look at guys like Saquon Barkley coming out in the draft this year who could do everything. Um, 
And, you know, that's going to be an important position when you can be just as effective as a receiver that you are as a runner, you're going to be immensely popular to teams. So the other way I think that you can see this really being beneficial to understand how it works for fantasy's sake is on a game by game matchup basis, right? Like if we know that Jordan Howard is good out of the shotgun and we know that an opposing defense you know, struggles against shotgun uh, formations, like maybe that's something we can exploit. Or if you can start to forecast game script to some extent, if you can say, oh, well, you know what, the Bears are probably going to be winning this game, that means they're going to hand it off to Jordan Howard more. They're going to use him as that ground and pound type of player. Uh, That's the other angle I think you can shoot here. Um, with, with these play calling splits and with these, with those, you know, narrow, more narrow players, players who have more specific roles like that, mm-hmm. because I mean, again, the Patriots are a, an offsided example where you would say, oh, is this a Legarrette Blunt game or is it a James White game or is this a Legarrette Blunt game or a Deion Lewis game? Right? Like you exactly, look at yes. you look at the opponent, you look at what the schemes dictate, and that can give you an advantage in fantasy. Now, in terms of these these splits that you're looking at, and I mentioned some of them earlier, what tends to be the most consistent from year to year, assuming you know some continuity in terms of coach and and, and players and stuff? Well, right now there's no continuity. We talked about <laughs> that's little, true. But um, you know, you look at pace. Pace is typically you know pretty continuous, but then you also have to factor in. You know, some of the game script things. Do we think they're going to be a good team? Do we think they're going to have a good offense? Do we think their defense is going to play well? Um, and, and that sort of has some effects, but usually coaches try to get in a certain number of plays per game. Uh, they, they have target numbers they want to hit, and that just means that, hey, we're sustaining drives. Uh, we're doing the things we need to do to convert first downs, and, and I'm running 70 plays so everybody on TV can see my whole arsenal. So pace is one of those things, and typically, you know, run pass widths are pretty consistent when there's not a lot of movement. But there's so much movement right now. You know, all the offensive coordinator move we talked about and the play caller changes, but now we're also going to see – you know, how many new quarterbacks for different teams next year, that there's so much movement that the consistency this year is going to be a little bit rough. So which factors are are least consistent, or or which ones do you see the most turnover in, in terms of play calling splits? I mean, that's one where you could see completely different things. Like, if you go from one coordinator to another, everything literally can change. But if, if you're staying with the coordinator, it sort of depends on the personnel. So if we add a back, then it's more likely you're going to see a few more upticks and run plays and, and things along those lines. But stability, you know, there, there's a lot of numbers that are very much, you know, the same. And, you know, coaches are fickle beasts, especially when it comes to, like, third down play calling and things they like to do there and third and short. And, and Kev Cole's done a great study about the effectiveness of running out of shotgun in, you know, third and short situations, third and two or less. You know, coaches aren't, you know, using it enough, but it's more effective than, you know, going straight under center. So one of the bigger, you know, discrepancies that I saw in terms of shotgun plays, which we've been talking about for a little bit here, were uh, the Broncos. Between 2016, they saw the biggest jump 
uh, in the percentage of shotgun plays they were running. And on the flip side of that coin, the 49ers and the Bills had the biggest decreases in terms of shotgun usage between 2016 and 2017. So based upon, you know, coaching and personnel changes this offseason, do you anticipate seeing any big changes in play calling tendencies in 2018 relative to what we saw last year? I mean, it doesn't have to be one of those teams or shotgun, but do you, do you estimate that, you know, certain changes of coordinator or, or specific personnel moves are going to dictate changes in usage for uh, any particular team? Yeah, we talked about the Bears a lot. They should be running uh, the Bears, you know, 934, 967, 1025 plays. I expect them to be a little bit over league average, if not way more uh, above league average. Uh, with Matt Nagy at the helm, I expect them to be a fast-paced offense, uh, at least above league average. Uh, but that's going to be a big change for a team that was bottom of the barrel in terms of plays. They could see another 100 plays added on, which is like close to two games worth of plays. And we talk about that over the skill position players. You know, how does that affect guys like Allen Robinson and, uh, you know, newcomers Trey Burton? Because that whole wide receiver core is also changing. Um that it's a big, big difference in terms of, you know, Mitch Trubisky and his number of attempts this season, because they played a tight to the vest style offense uh, that shouldn't be there next season. Another team like the Bengals, the Bengals fell off a cliff. They went from, you know, a thousand and four plays, ten fifty, and then they fell down to nine twenty seven. I gotta think they're gonna try and get another sixty to seventy to eighty plays back get more nearly average, uh, and and that's going to be big things for them. But a team like the Broncos, you know, who just had another coordinator change midseason last year, I see them pulling back the reins because when they're most effective, they're running the ball and they're letting that defense get after people, despite it not being at the same level it was during their Super Bowl runs. It's still a good defense. They can still get pressure on the quarterbacks. So they're a team that's going to come down – from their uh, 10.75 plays last year. You know, Jacksonville is also another team that ran a lot of plays. That's something I think could get scaled back a little bit. Um, Anybody else really standing out? I mean, you'd have to think the Giants are going to, you know, take a little bit of step back. They've ran a lot of plays under, you know, Ben McAdoo. Um, I I think that's something that's going to pull back, you know, with the more conservative coach in Shermer. Uh, even though he was very aggressive last year at times in Minnesota, you know, when he was with Cleveland, he sort of played it tighter to the vest. So there's a lot of different teams that you, you can sort of expect to pull pull it back a little bit. And it could also be a guy like Marcus Mariota who could see a bump in plays next year. Well, and, and Mariota is a great example. Like we're forecasting all these changes for, you know, the Bears and Trubisky because they had a a coaching change. Like that coaching change in Tennessee might be monumental for Mariota in terms of how much they let him, you know, handle the ball, not not only passing it, but maybe running it too. Um, Another team uh, that comes to mind for me is the Colts, just based upon the fact that we assume, and and this is a big assumption, that Andrew Luck is going to be back and, you know, how he impacts that offense and allows them to sustain more drives could really, you know, see their their you know offensive numbers and their number of plays really bump up. So uh, yeah. that's one of the more nebulous that's situations. Definitely. But um, yeah, what, what do you have to say about the Colts and Luck? 
That that's a very good one. With luck, you could project them for probably 50 higher plays uh, over the course of a season than you could with Jacoby Brissett at quarterback. They played tight to the vest. They played super tight in all situations. You can read a great piece by Warren Sharp uh, about how they you know, played in close games and games where they were even leading going into the third and fourth quarters late uh, with leads and how they would just run, run, pass run, run, pass. Anytime there's a rhythm, run, run, pass, run, run, pass to an offense, I'm not a fan of it. Um, you're predictable. Just like I said earlier, it's like that's yeah. the one thing you can't be on offense is predictable because then you're playing right into the defense's hands, right? Yep, absolutely. Uh, we talk about some numbers um, that you look at in terms of teams that have winning records and they're more likely to pass uh, than teams with losing records when winning, you know, went up in football games. And I think that's a big thing. Um, so, you know, these guys are aggressive when winning. You, you get you go aggressive to get out and get the lead, but then suddenly everything goes out the window and you become Hugh Jackson as a play caller. Well, let's talk about that game script effect on play calling, too, because in-game, play calling is going to you know, vary based upon the situation. You know, the score of the game and the time remaining are really going to dictate that. And w one thing I'm always curious about is how much the coin flip matters, how much first possession matters, because we talk all the time about game script and game flow and how it affects you know, which players are going to be good, but we have to think about that from a holistic viewpoint. We have to think about how the game is probably going to play out over the entire 60 minutes of, of clock. But, you know, one team starts with the ball, right? And, and everything after, everything later in the game is built upon what happens before it, right? So how important do you think that that first possession is? And how early should we expect game flow to factor into, you know, these teams' play calling decisions? When we talk about the coin flip specifically, I don't think it has much of an effect. You know, teams' first options typically to defer. The reason they do this, I've talked to a couple different guys about it, you know, in indoor football, you know, who played in the NFL. Uh, their reasoning is always momentum, 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 momentum. And the way you get momentum is if you can have the last possession of the first half and the first possession of the second half. That's where you can get a big swing in the scores of games quickly. Uh, you know, if you can hold the ball, score within the last two minutes of the game and then get it coming out at halftime, you know, when you're still riding high from that touchdown or field goal, it's a big thing for these guys. So if you win the field goal, you know, if you win the coin toss, teams are typically choosing to defer. So what, know, hold on. So what you're saying is that if you lose the coin flip, you get the ball first, but you march down and score a touchdown to keep momentum. You should just do an onside kick. I'm okay with that. <laughs> just fine with you. I mean, there is definitely that probability in, you know, lower level leagues, you know, where guys are built on being aggressive and guys, uh, you know, never punt in high school football and they have, you know, gross numbers of national championships. You never punt. You always onside. You do all these things and, and you can increase your winning percentage just based off playing a couple numbers. And it really works for them. If we'd ever see that at the NFL level, you know, I'm going to doubt it. But we've seen, you know, teams take these things, like even the pooch kick, and how they can, you know, push 
these teams back an extra five to, you know, three to five yards in their average starting field position, they're going to choose to do it every time. And those small decisions in games and making teams go farther are huge factors. So there are a lot of these things that can change games. But, you know, overall, the defer is a big one. They want to they want to just call it. But then there are some teams that believe, you know, hey, this should never be done in the second half or this should never be done at overtime, you know, and you should never say we're going to take the ball and we're going to score. But, yeah, let's get the ball right now. Let's go down the field. Let's assert, uh, you know, our dominance. Let's show, you know, how much of a better team we are right now. And let's set the tone. Some teams are big believers in that. But I'm always just going to take the marginal effect of a chance of, you know, the deferment. Yeah, it's small edges. It's kind of like you what we do in fantasy, right? We're, we're trying to forecast these players, and if we're right 60% of the time instead of, you know, 58% of the time, that's a huge win, right? A very small marginal gain, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, over time, that's going to play out in our favor, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But then when we talk about the game split itself and we talk about, you know, if a team is trailing right off the bat, how is that going to change their um, sort of play calling? And being down that first possession, you know, the other team marches down and scores, you are going to be a little bit amped up. And you're going to, you know, you see those drives end in three outs, three and outs more often than you'd like because they're taking some of the things off the games. They're taking things they wanted to do and reacting to another team rather than being proactive. So I'm always going to be proactive. I'm going to preach proactiveness. I don't want to make decisions uh, based off of you know what the other team is doing. I, I want to be able to make my own decisions. I want to be aggressive. That That's sort of my mindset. So, so it's all going to depend on what these play callers want to do because, you know, game flow is, is a crazy fickle beast that you could be right or wrong on and, you know, one kickoff. Or, yeah, any any turnover, like all that stuff can, can really turn on a dime. Now, I want to talk more about, you know, pl- the players, like you kind of mentioned, like how the players are impacted by stuff and, again, fitting tendencies, play calling tendencies to personnel. For the players' sakes, do you think that it's important for a team to, you know, maintain a con- a consistent identity with play calling? Like, for example, in your data, you show the Raiders ran the highest percentage of runs in third and short scenarios last season. And that makes sense, right? Marshawn Lynch was a notable free agent pickup for them, and they seem to kind of embrace his persona in, that, in those short yardage situations. But on the other hand... If you look at their numbers from inside the 10-yard line, where you know you would expect to see a lot of runs with that sort of mentality, the Raiders were one of the three most pass-happy teams in the league. They only ran the ball about 37% of the time. So why that shift in philosophy in similar situations? Why Seth Roberts? Why? Uh, it's a very confounding question. It basically starts off with why you got fired uh, <laughs> and then ends with why you got fired. But... There, there's a lot of different aspects. You know, Marshawn is a tone setter. You know, converting those third and short situations is important. But then we look at, you know, things like hindsight analysis and was, you know, was throwing a slant route on, you know, first and one 
from the one-yard line the right call for a team like Seattle in the Super Bowl? And in hindsight analysis, no. But you look at the odds of it being a successful play, it's absolutely the right call. So, sure. you know, those things all go into it. Um, we got to look at guys' success rates over long terms. You know, Marshawn's been a great uh, first down getter. I, he's been a great touchdown getter. So I would do both of those things. I would make sure he's the centerpiece of the offense. When when a guy is better than you know average, and we're playing those margins again, you know, in terms of success rate, that's something that's great for him. So let's not, but let's also not use that to be unoriginal. Let's, you know, use the play action in those, you know, situations and, you know, have Derek Carr on a rollout with, you know, Amari Cooper on a pivot and, you know, get these quick hitting passes that are also, you know, typically highly successful. So you got to use a little bit of both and the balance uh, is one of those things we keep talking about. So you can go to your, you know, late game hammer and you know, know he's going to get it 50% of the time, but how do you go beyond identity and how do you go on uh, by being stale and unoriginal and get away from that and, and also just get it to the guys who need to get the ball because uh, your playmakers are, aren't going to be happy if you don't throw to a mass T.O. Yeah, I mean, and that's why the Seth Roberts stuff is so infuriating for fantasy owners and probably for Raiders fans, too. It's like you have Marshawn Lynch, you have Amari Cooper, you have Michael Crabtree. Why is Seth Roberts getting all these red zone targets? It's crazy. And, and here they go and they re-sign him. So, I mean, what, what do we know, I guess? But um, in terms of, you know, those those systems or those coaches who are stale or more predictable, which ones do you think are, are the most set in their ways in, in the NFL? I mean, these there's a lot of guys that are sort of being phased out over the last, you know, five or six years. But you can look at guys like John Fox, Jeff Fisher. They're running outdated power systems with with lackluster run games. Um, but there's some of these old coordinators that you know keep getting recycled around the league, keep getting recycled around the league. Um, you look like Mar- Marty Morningwig. Uh, Malarkey. These guys are just being recycled, but we haven't seen anything innovative from them in years. The most innovative they get to is like a halfback pass or a, a reverse from you know a wide receiver, and that, and that those are their wrinkles. But you know, there's a lot of different coaches that are coming in that are younger that have the ability to be more aggressive because they've got a little bit of job stability, being the new hotness. Allows you a little bit of pliability. It allows you to be malleable. I mean, so that that's what I'm excited to see because there are more of these younger coordinators, you know, this season than there ever has been, and that's a great thing. So how about the the more old school guys? And and let's leave Bill Belichick out of this because we've already you know acknowledged that he's a great coach and he's very good at fitting scheme to personnel. But of the more old school coaching guys, uh, who, who are play callers? I should say. Who who ends up being more malleable in your eyes? You know, Andy Reid's a great play caller. Uh, he might not be a great time manager or great red flag holder, and he might have his own you know issues. But you know, he's a great play caller, and I don't think that's something we can forget. Uh, you know, some of these other guys, all these Philadelphia guys, are looking like they're. Um, malleable and can make different decisions. 
I'm excited to see um, Brian Bedall, the former Alabama offensive coordinator now with Buffalo. I want to see how he's going to mix a pro-style system with, you know, the ground and pound identity that the Buffalo Bills have had over the last couple of years. Um, but then you look at guys, you know, back to the old ways. You look at Dowell Loggins and how he's played slow and Marty Morningweg and, you know, his run pass splits. And there's just a lot of, you know, uncomfortable things there. Um, like Nathaniel Hackett in Jacksonville is going to run a pretty conservative scheme. You know, Bill Musgrave might be in between, you know, Wiz and Hunt's been running his system forever, but he seems to be a guy who's willing to add more and more wrinkles. But, you know, Scott Linehan, another old school guy, you know, Mike Shula's been a guy who's ran the same thing for a while. But these guys who are going to be different, you know, Mark Helfrich, you know, former Oregon head coach coming over to be the Bears offense coordinator, work with Nagy. That's going to be, you know, an exciting thing. Um, and there's a lot of different guys, you know, like that, like the um, McVeigh as a play caller. You know, Matt LaFleur coming off of his tree, what he's going to be able to do. Um, that, then you look back uh, at a couple of these other guys that have already had success in Frank Reich at, you know, and um, uh, Doug Peterson in their offense. So the league's got a pretty good 50-50 split of guys that are sort of set in their ways and guys that'll be malleable. And I'm always going to bet on the guys that have sort of uh, adapted with the times. Now, I want to dig a little bit more deeper on, um, and forgive me, I, I didn't know his name, but who's the new offensive coordinator in Buffalo? Uh, Brian Battle. Brian Battle. This is one of my favorite things to do on the show is I don't really keep track of yeah. college football. So yeah. when, when I hear about stuff like this, like this guy coming into the league, what what can you tell you know me and the listeners about? Like educate us on what his college system was like and what we might be able to expect from uh, what might be a new look Buffalo Bills offense. So he's kept a lot of the offensive tenants of Lane Kiffin. Um, some of the things that college coaches are going to more and more these days is easier play calls. So while he comes from, uh, what is it, Ertz Perkins-style offense, pretty pro-traditional, pretty similar to what the Patriots run, um, and there's going to be a lot of similarities there in terms of moving pieces and quick passes, all about possessing the football, uh, the sort of communication with the quarterback and communication with the younger players should be improved because we always talk about these guys. Uh, Lamar Jackson's never called a you know West Coast offense play in his life. Why, why are we still making this so hard? Uh, why are we having fifteen play play fifteen word plays when you could do the same thing in three or four words, get the same points across, and just simplify things? Um, that, that actually so, brings me to a, a, something I've been meaning to plug on the show for a little while here, and that's um, a different Anthony, Anthony Amico, doing a podcast series over at Rotoviz called The Coach's Box. And one of his most recent episodes was called Simple Equals Fast or something like that. And it's all about that. It's about simplifying the play calls and making it easy for the players to understand so that they can play more on instinct. And, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. When I could say things like two wide jet Z sweep, uh, pass right, you know, I'm more effective than going 
Tango X dig Y read um, Z you know curl and, and you're saying what every position is doing rather than getting the overall concept to the guys because when you're you're better at conveying the concepts you're going to be better as a football team it's going to allow you to play faster and one of the things overall is as the league has started to run more plays they have started to score more points um there since 2006 there's an r squared of you know 0.73 basically of total plays in the nfl and total points scored so there's an idea that if you can go faster like chip kelly tried to do maybe tame it back a little bit that you can score more points and we saw chip kelly you know be very success successful for a couple of years um, with that. So if coaches can take that idea, tame it back a little bit, but take that idea, play fast, play loose, let your guys get in positions, run your zones in your play, your run calls are all, you know, simple play calls. You can be successful. You can get to into your coordinator's helmet, uh, into your quarterback's helmet, and then, you know, get up to the line of scrimmage, kill, kill, kill. Okay, we know we're going with the second play. Now we're playing faster. Now we're attacking, and that's important for an offense. Yep, it's that proactivity you were talking about. Now I want to wind down with a, a couple more topics here, and the first is uh, getting back to the idea of fitting your play-calling tendencies to your opponents and, and trying to maximize matchups. And I, I'm wondering how often or when does exploiting a weakness of the opposing defense trump other play-calling factors? Like, you might want to run a certain style of offense, but when do you when do we see teams deviate from that? Like when when are they most likely to to buck convention, I should say, to go go in favor of the matchup or or some exploitable weakness on the defense? I don't know if there is a clear cue for this. Uh you know, we, we talk about the Patriots, you know, a lot because they game plan to their opponent every week. They basically throw out the playbook. This is the playbook for this week. It, it's based off of things that the defense has been exploited by. We're going to run, you know, five similar concepts to that. And then we're going to, you know, check out these five that another team has ran. And then we're going to see what's been weak. We're going to test out inside run. We're going to test out outside run. We're going to test out a runs out of two back sets. And we're going to test out, you know, two tight end sets. What's going to be our major uh, competitive advantage in this game? I've got to test it. I've got to know early. You know, when we talk about these game scripts and coaches having 15 plays on their card that are all written down, even though those things are more flexible than people give them credit for, they're not just straight 15 plays that you're going to run a row. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you – get sacked on the first and 10 play and your second and 15, you're not going to go to the play that you had drawn up for second and five. Uh, those things are much more flexible than people give them credit for. It's more of a bubble of plays to where, okay, I've got these 20 plays that I want to get and see the looks and see the concepts on, you know, then I tailor to the situation. So those things are a lot more flexible than, you know, a lot of people make them seem uh, and, th- and that's one overall thing that you could see sitting on a sideline is these guys aren't rigid with their first 15s. 
Uh, and that's despite broadcasters sometimes making them seem like they're the holy grail and they're the only thing that matters to start a football game. Yeah, and that, that kind of brings me to something that I find super interesting about game plan and play calling, you know, on an offense versus defense uh, kind of level is that that idea of like the gambler's fallacy where if you walk up to a roulette table and they have that little, you know, display that shows, oh, well, red has come up for five spins in a row. That means that black is due, right? Like that, that's not how it works. Like every spin is independent uh, in its own right. Or it's kind of like uh, that scene in The Princess Bride where the dude's trying to figure out which cup is poison. He's like, well, if I think that you think that I think that you think. And you can you can go back and forth on this. It's a game of cat and mouse. And ultimately, you have to make a decision. But you can always talk yourself into some head game that's being played with you. So, like, just because I run the ball 80% of the time in a certain situation doesn't mean that in a single instant of that situation that I, I can't run a pass play, that I'm not going to run a pass play. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm curious, how often do you think that teams outsmart themselves with these play calls? Plenty. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, there's there there's the example of Marshawn not getting it on the one-yard sure. line, but... You know, process over results. I think that's good process. The numbers bear it out. It would have been better than throwing an end zone fade, which is terrible. So, Shout so, out to so, on that one. Yeah. So, so how do we identify good versus bad process? Like, what what are you looking for when you're trying to figure that out? I mean, it's all going to come down to game situation. Like, every process needs to be evaluated on that specific play. How much time's left? Is it third and one? Am I down by five or am I down by ten? I need to make you know different decisions based off those things because if I'm running the ball on a third and one, but we're down ten and there's seven minutes left in the game, you know maybe it's a decent process, but could it, I have you know better affected my winning percentage? By, by maybe throwing a pass there and throwing a pass there on the next play when I don't get it. So, you know, I try not to subscribe to hindsight analysis, especially when we get into things like fourth down play calling. Um, I'm always going to believe in being aggressive there as well. So there's things that you should do as a fourth down play caller, like, you know, give your quarterback multiple reads, give him different plays at the line of scrimmage, let him go with what he's comfortable with. And there's things you shouldn't do as a fourth down play caller, like, you know, put your punter behind center with nobody else on the line of scrimmage. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just, it's fascinating to me because you can, you can really take it to that, you can take it to one level higher and then an X level. And it's like, it's, it's such a weird mind game that I think ultimately you kind of have to strip it back and ask yourself that question about your personnel and say like, who are my best players and how am I going to use them? Like, and this is kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of that key tenet of my own like play calling or offensive philosophy is that I want to, I want to have confidence in my guys and I want to trust my guys to make plays. And at some point you do really have to put the ball in the hands of your playmakers and you have to let them try to win the game for you or try to, you know, make the play for you. And I, I don't know that, that when, when you said that coaches outsmart themselves all the time and you, or when I asked that and you said plenty, I was like, absolutely. They totally do because you see this stuff all the time. Marshawn Lynch, not getting the ball, Taylor Gabriel sweeps when you have, you know, Devonta Freeman, uh, Tevin Coleman and Julio Jones and Mohamed Sanu as these, these 
key possession guys on short yardage situations with the Falcons. Like we see this over and over again, where these guys they they embrace that idea of unpredictability too much, and it's 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 fascinating to me because there is no right answer, right? It's again, you can use hindsight analysis, you can look at the process based upon you know probabilities, but again, because of the you know that gambler's fallacy idea, you don't necessarily know if this is going to be the 10% of time where my 80% pro or my 90% proposition doesn't work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then when we talk about, you know, these, you know, key plays in games where we typically use hindsight, like why the fuck is this guy running outside right now when he needs one yard? Um, and that thing comes into play all the time, but you look at sort of effective plays and you want to be maybe, you know, shotgun reads, um, shotgun read option. That's a really effective play. Cam Newton's one of the best third down players in the league because he can make that split second decision to whether this running back's going to get him a yard or if he's going to use his body to get that yard. And that's one of those plays that's, you know, unscriptable and, you know, hard to defend as a defense. So whenever I can have a guy with an asset like Cam Newton, I'm going to choose that. But then I'm also not going to try and fit him into a box uh, to which we talk about, you know, hey, let's try and change Cam Newton into a pocket passer. And, you know, he's only going to run two or three times a game. And and we're going to cut back all of that. And we're going to try and get the ball out of his hands quickly, despite it's not what he does well. So now you see a a change again to where they're likely going with a more vertical-oriented offense. Uh, They're going to try and add a guy with speed on the outside in the draft, you know, for Cam Newton. And you're going to have these vertical stretch players mixed in with, you know, Cam Newton's successful rush. and, And that's a super hard thing to defend. Yeah, totally. Now, that that's one example of, you know, one quarterback who might be benefited from scheme, from play calling tendencies, things like that. I want to get you out of here on this, Anthony. Who among quarterbacks would you say are primed to surprise the most or overperform value the most based upon what you forecast for play calling tendencies? Like who are the quarterbacks who you're most excited to see, uh, you know, that, that you think are coming up right now based upon this stuff? Yeah, we talked about Marcus Mariota earlier. He's one I'm really excited for. I'll be very excited for Jameis Winston when they fire Dirk Cotter next season. <laughs> and he gets a you know young coach who's gonna you know let him be him because he's an eccentric personality, uh, and that's sort of what made him great at Florida State. They let him you know control things. They let him be that egomaniac that he is, and, and he played great like that. But trying to ring some of these guys in and make them be people they're not is when it doesn't work out. But Mariota is a guy I'm definitely excited about. Um, you know, I think there's a, a bunch of different coaches uh, around the league that, you know, are going to be in good spots. I think Tyrod Taylor with a Todd Haley coached offense and, you know, the weapons around him, you know, with Josh Gordon and Jarvis Landry, Carlos Hyde and Duke Johnson, you know, David Njoku and Seth the Valve. They've got weapons all over the field. Laser's a guy who likes to, or Haley's a guy who likes to get the ball out, uh, but also likes to run some vertical stretch elements. 
so that's a good thing for Tyrod. We saw when, you know, he was given time in the pocket that he could make deep throws to Sammy Watkins. So I think, you know, should they end up drafting a Josh Allen, the guy who I know is going to be a project, I'm going to be hammering away at Tyrod Taylor in drafts. Yeah, no, I love that call, and he's he's a guy I'm pretty excited about. I own him in a in a one quarterback dynasty league, and I thought that you know this might be the year I'd have to cut him, but after seeing him go to Cleveland, man, I'm pretty excited about the prospects there, especially you know with his rushing upside. But um, Anthony, I really want to thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, why don't you let people know uh, what you're working on, where they can find you on social media, and all that good stuff? Yeah. Uh... Again, Anthony Staggs, Pyro Staggs, so P-Y-R-S-T-A-G, uh, P-Y-R-O. Probably O is probably important. You need that Pyro. X's and, X's and O's, and I forgot the O, so <laughs> that's always a good start to a podcast, good way to end it. Um, but uh, I'm on the Fantasy Football Fire. We slowed down a little bit during the off season, but we'll start ramping up here again soon to doing just about a weekly show. Uh, I'll be putting out a lot of different stuff on Twitter. Just I, I spend a lot of time there. I'm discussing with everybody. You know, maybe one day it'll be on the NFL draft. The next day it could be on some college football stats. The next day it could be on some of these play calling tendencies. And I'll just put it all out there because, you know, our site focuses a lot on, you know, bigger pieces, you know, more chart-worthy, you know, things. So I've got a lot of this. I've got data upon data that I just throw out there and open up discussions on. Oh, yeah, man. I I mean, I will personally vouch for Anthony right now. Staggs throws out, you know, some of the best stuff on Twitter. He's one of my favorite follows at Pyrostag, P-Y-R-O-S-T-A-G. And, I mean, this is kind of one of the things I like about what you put out there are are the fact that they are these bigger picture things, these these trends that you can see across multiple teams or, or multiple players and how they stack up against each other. And that's, that's one of my favorite things about this time of year. I know this is kind of a dead time for the NFL because we're basically all just waiting for the draft to happen. But it lets us have these bigger picture discussions like we just did for you know an hour and 20 minutes on this podcast right talking about play calling tendencies and, and things like that it's it's just a really exciting time so um yeah man make sure you're following anthony on twitter uh make sure you're following uh 2qbs.com on twitter at 2qbs uh, in both cases you spell that out t-w-o-q-b-s uh, if you want to email us uh we, you can you know submit questions for the show or, or whatever um 2qbs at gmail.com uh, if, if you have time, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Apple Music or wherever else. Uh, that really helps out the show. And with that said, uh, that does it for another episode of the 2QB Experience. We're going to be back again later this week. It's it's a two-episode week. We're, we're making up for a lost one uh, last week. And, uh, you know, the draft will be here right after that. So uh, stay tuned for episode number two. And we'll catch you next time. Adios. <laughs>